Well, good evening. Good to see everyone again. Just uh, to say there's been a lot of slander going on. People are saying I'm getting old and my eyesight is fading, so I needed glasses. It's not true, I just wanted to look cool. And, uh, it's just clear glass. <laughs> uh, well, we're coming to the end of our, our evening series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you can turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. I'm just going to look at a few verses, 21 through 23. And so Jesus is bringing a, a close to the sermon and its very pointed application, very disturbing application. I think these are some of the most sobering uh, verses in the whole Bible. So let's read through them first. So Matthew 7 from verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. J.C. Ryle says the Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. Uh, Tasker says it is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread. A man may also be grievously self-deceived. So uh, last week we saw that it's uh, the teaching that Jesus gives about the false teachers. We have to be careful and aware and to beware of them. But this passage uh, points more to all Christians. Um, So let's see what Jesus says. So he starts off in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And what we're going to see in this section is is a lot to do with speech. Uh, The people here are are those who say things. They speak. And it is clear in the Bible, Paul says in Romans, that we must confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord if we are to be saved. Uh, Confession is right and correct. But what Jesus shows us here is it's not enough just to say certain things. It's not enough just to uh, declare that Jesus is Lord. And I want you to see some things from what they they say. Uh, They... They call the Lord Jesus Christ Lord. Uh, that's a very powerful statement. So in the Old Testament, the, the word Lord uh, really meant master or Adonai is the Hebrew word. It was to say God is master. God is the one who is in charge. And the word could be used for many people, even, even today um, in courtrooms. People will say my Lord to the judge. And so it is a term used in, in, in common language as well. But in the Bible, it has, has a much deeper meaning. It really refers to the deity of Jesus Christ. When you call him, we call him Lord Jesus Christ. We are saying that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord of the Old Testament. 
He is the God-man. And so these people had orthodox theology. That's the first thing I want you to notice here. They were not heretics. They were not people who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, There are many cults that do that. Uh, They will say they worship Jesus, they love Jesus, they have a high view of Jesus, but they do not call him Lord. He is not God to them. But these people do. They say that Jesus Christ is God. And again, at the time of the New Testament, when the New Testament is written, when the Gospels are written, uh, the term Lord was also a, a freighted term. It was a controversial term because the Caesar, Caesars had started to see themselves as Lord. And so you had to, uh, if you were in the Roman Empire, also had to declare that Caesar is Lord. And so Mark especially picks up on this to say, which Lord are you going to follow? Are you going to follow Caesar or are you going to follow Christ? Uh, and so when these people are willing to call Jesus Christ Lord, even perhaps at expense, at the cost of their own lives. And so they, they, they have a, a, an orthodox theology. They understand that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God, what we call a hypostatic union. They use their intellect. They use their mind. They declare that he is Lord. But notice that it's repeated. Lord, Lord. Uh, and you see this in the scriptures because... That was the way of emphasizing something. It was a way of showing passion in the scriptures. And, and it's a Semitic way of speaking to, to repeat uh, a, a term or a word or a name. So uh, we would often, maybe if you send an email or a WhatsApp message, you put it in capitals, you know. Uh, I need an answer now. Okay? Um, they would probably say now, now. Okay? <laughs> to repeat it, to emphasize it. And so you see this even in in the Lord. He is holy, holy, holy. It's emphasizing the absolute holiness of of God. When Absalom dies, you remember David's son. uh, David doesn't just say, oh, Absalom, I'm I'm so sorry that you've died. He says, oh, Absalom, Absalom. Uh, It's a way of showing passion. And so again, here you see that these people are not uh, people who just pitch up on Sundays to church and they're disinterested and it's boring and, you know, they have uh, got to do this stuff. They are passionate about being involved. Lord, Lord, uh, there is excitement. There would be people who are excited to be at church on a, on a Sunday. And so there's the heart involvement as well. There's emotion There's the mind. There's correct theology. And yet Jesus says not everyone who simply uh, has correct theology or emotion will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what is the kingdom of heaven? Matthew uses that term. I told you before, it's not different to the kingdom of God. Uh, If someone tries to give you some nuanced meaning or something or some secret insight that the kingdom of heaven is something different, just don't buy that book, okay? Uh, Don't waste your money. Uh, He he just didn't want to offend his Jewish audience by by using the the term God. And so the Jews preferred not to say God. And so he says the kingdom of heaven. But it is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? We understand that God is in control of all things. He is absolutely sovereign. But the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in his parables, teaches us about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. He teaches us about his, the economy of his kingdom. And so theologians talk about his kingdom as his rule and his reign in a special way. And it's nearly coterminous with the church. 
Okay? Uh, it is not geographical. You mustn't think in geographic terms. We tend to think of you know, the United Kingdom or the Kingdom of Dubai or something like that. You mustn't think of it in that way. The Kingdom of God is not you know, this piece of land over here or something like that. It is, the, it is where Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of His people and their influence in the world. That is the, the Kingdom of God. And really it is, it is synonymous with being saved. Uh, you remember in, in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and he says to him, you, know, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Never mind, enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so uh, to enter the kingdom of God, to come under the, the lordship of Christ, to enter into his kingdom, you must be regenerated and converted. You must have been made spiritually alive and you must have repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Then you are in the kingdom of of God. And so here we see it's not enough simply to be emotional, to have correct theology. Uh, You must know the Lord as we'll see. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven... But who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this really gets at the issue. What is the difference between a true believer and uh, a false believer? Uh, The title for this sermon is Christians Who Don't Know Christ. So it's intentionally provocative because that's the reality. You can be baptized. You can be a member of a church. You can, when the census comes around, you take Christian. uh, You claim to be a Christian. You claim the correct doctrines. And yet you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the difference? Well, Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father. That really gets to the core. It's the one who submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it Lordship Salvation. In church history, unfortunately, there have been movements that say, no, no, he can be your Savior, but not yet your Lord. So you could be saved just simply because you made a professional faith. You put your hand up. At an altar call, you came to the front, you repeated some words after someone, therefore you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if nothing in your life has changed, if you continue to sleep around, continue to live with your girlfriend, continue to uh, be a thief and a liar and a blasphemer and dishonest and uh, disrespectful to your parents and to those in authority. It doesn't matter because you prayed a prayer and that's all that is required. That's a lie. Uh, To be saved means you acknowledge His Lordship and you come under His Lordship. You submit to Him as Lord. You don't simply say with your mouth, Lord, Lord, but you actually submit to Him as Lord. And that is the most difficult thing. Uh, I quite enjoy personality tests. Um, Always take them with a pinch of salt, but they can be quite fascinating and, and insightful. You figure things out about yourself, and the good ones will show you your strengths and then also your weaknesses. And um, uh, some of the personality tests have a history in, in, the, in, in Christian doctrine, Christian theology, because they're there to help you see, okay, these are my weaknesses. This is the area where I'm prone to sin in. And uh, I did one recently, and it was uh, different colors, okay, so it, it had... Um, Red and blue and white and yellow. So those are the different colors. And it said red 
People who are primarily red or primarily blue, they want to control. Okay, that one of the things about them is they want to control and to lead. And then it says uh, white and yellow, they don't want to be controlled. Okay, and that's the truth. Every human being either wants to control or does not want to be controlled. And to be a Christian means you, you are not in control. You come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You say, Lord, you are in control. And even if you don't like being controlled, that doesn't matter. You come under his authority. If you say, I, no, I don't want anyone to tell me how to live my life. I will live the way I want to live. Then you cannot be a Christian. If you refuse to submit to his, his Lordship. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus says this. Matthew 15, verse 8, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's exactly what these people do. They honor him with their lips. Lord, Lord, but their heart is far. They're not willing to submit to him. In Luke's gospel, in the Sermon on the Plain, uh, Luke 6, 46 Luke makes it even clearer. He says, uh, Lord Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Isn't that powerful? You call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you to do. If you've ever had a business or had people work for you, it doesn't matter if they call you boss, yes boss, yes boss, but don't do what you tell them to do. They can be so nice and friendly, but they need to listen to you. You can say Lord, Lord, but you must Listen to him. We must do the will of of God. We must submit to him. It means to lose your life. It means that he is absolutely sovereign. Why do people reject Christianity? This is a fundamental issue. They don't want to lose their lives. They want to remain in control. They don't want to be told what to do with their money. They don't want to be told what to do with their body. When you're saved, you belong to God. Everything about you, well, even before you said God owns everything. One of the reasons why you must come to God is because he is God and in charge of everything. Uh, but when you come to him as Lord, you're saying, Lord, you're in charge of me. You're in charge of all my faculties, my mind, my emotions, my possessions, my body. Everything. You are in absolute control and I submit to that. The gospel says you must submit to the fact that you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace alone. Again, we want to, be, to, to receive some praise for our salvation. We want to receive some praise for being involved in some way. But the gospel says, no, you come and say, it's nothing of myself. It is all of, of you. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is, is my sin. It's the only thing I bring. And so the key issue is this. Have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Have you submitted to doing the will of, of God? You can come on Sundays. That's really what Jesus is getting at. You can come and sing the song, say, Lord, Lord, put your hands up. Close your eyes, look spiritual, nothing wrong with those things. I'm just saying, it, it's external. And we can deceive people. But have you submitted to, to the Lord? 
Jonathan Edwards, uh, he, he was a, a, a pastor in America in the 1700s, just before the, the um, American Revolution. And uh, they experienced some revivals. And one of the things that he noticed was that they had this revival. And then about a year or two later, all those people that were supposedly converted had gone back to their old ways. And so he began to research this. What are the true signs of conversion? What is it that you can say that means that person is truly saved? Because he thought the Lord is doing a wonderful work here. Everyone has been saved only to find a year or two later, no, they were not saved. But they were doing all these external things. And so he, he wrote a book studying this, The Religious Affections, that's what it's called. And he gives 12 signs that are not necessarily signs of true conversion. So he, what he said is, as he studied over the years, he saw that you can actually see these things in someone and they're not a, a, a guarantee that the person is truly saved. He says this, the religious affections are very great or raised very high. You can be very passionate, very emotional. He says that. Point two, they have great effects on the body. You can weep. You can fall on your knees. They did. You can go and read the history of the, the, the revival. You can read the, the story of his, his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and what happened, and how people were grabbing hold of the pillars. Because they were afraid of being pulled into hell. They were very demonstrative at that time. And so people would fall on their faces and scream out and weep and howl as they were afraid. And he says, you can have all of that. It's not a sign that you're truly converted. He says, uh, you can be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of the things of religion. You can talk a lot about Christianity. The person in a, in, a, in a room that will start talking about the things of God. It's not a sign that that person is truly saved. Now, it's important for us, what, we, what we're dealing with here is for the individual. It's not for us to go around, you know, judging other people. Oh, that guy spoke about the Lord, but I don't know if he's truly saved. That's not what we're called to, okay? Very, very important. Um, I, I can't overemphasize that. The Lord knows those who are His. When someone says they're a believer, uh, I believe we're to take that at face value unless there's evidence to the contrary. Okay? Uh, we're not to be cynical and skeptical and, and um, always judging everyone. Uh, when we start to see, no, actually there's no fruit, there's no evidence, there's no obedience, then we can begin to draw conclusions from Scripture. Okay? Um, Often people draw conclusions just because someone's different to them and does things differently. And they say, oh, they can't be Christian. because, But it's just a personality thing. And that's self-righteousness. So I can't emphasize that enough. Don't go away from here looking at everyone else. Okay, <laughs> uh, Go away from here examining yourself. Okay? Um, he says, uh, point five, he says, they can come with texts of Scripture remarkably brought to the mind. So you can memorize verses and use them at an appropriate time. You know your Bible. It's not a sign that you're truly saved. There is an appearance of love in them. 
So there is a, a type of love, a type of kindness in them. He says, comforts and joys seem to follow awakenings and convictions of conscience in a certain order. So you can, you can have conviction and then also comfort and joy. Again, he says, it's, it's not a true sign, ultimate sign of true conversion. He says, uh, you can be zealously engaged in the external duties of worship. It's not a sign of true conversion. Notice he says zealously. It's not just, oh, I'm on door duty again this week. This is a person who's passionate. Yes, I'm on the AV team this week. <laughs> uh, yes, I get to serve. Yes, I, they're passionate about it. Again, it's not an ultimate determiner of salvation. He says people can be exceedingly confident that what they experience is divine and that they are in a good estate. So you can have this assurance even. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm great. And so he goes through all these lists to say they are not absolute signs that a person belongs to the Lord. Jesus says in verse 22, on that day, now he's talking about the final day, the day of judgment. And so he said, you know, many people say to me, Lord, Lord. So during their lifetime, that's how they live. Lord, Lord. And then on judgment day, many, very disturbing, very sad. It's not a few, but many. Many over the history of the church. Remember what we're talking about here. Jesus is focusing in on those in the covenant community. Those who take the name of Christ. He's not here talking about uh, you know, pagans. He's talking about those in the church. Unfortunately, there will be many who will say to me on judgment day, Lord, Lord, again, notice the passion. What I find the most remarkable is that they're, they're not just quiet on judgment day. Isn't it something? They're still proud enough to argue with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I think this is telling us, this is important to note, it's not as though people on judgment day suddenly change. Those who are evil, those who are goats, suddenly, you know, calm down a bit. No. What they were in life continues in eternity. They will continue to be proud and arrogant, and that's why punishment is eternal. It's not as though they suddenly repent, but it's just too late. Sorry. They never repent because their nature is never changed. They continue to be full of themselves. They continue to be angry and bitter for all eternity. They're willing to, on judgment day, in front of the resurrected Christ, realizing that they are damned, to say, wait a minute. I'm going to argue with, with God. Isn't that incredible? I find it incredible. It shows you that the pride is still there. And what things did they do? Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? We don't have time to go into it, but I would argue that these things don't continue today. There were, there were signs in the first century for the 
transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. But there's still application for us. What would the application for us be today? What would we say if someone would say, how would you define a great Christian externally? I'm sure at that time people would define a great Christian as that. You know, they, sure, that person casts out demons, they prophesy, they, they proclaim God's word, they do many mighty works. What are the mighty works we might say? We might say maybe the person preaches really powerfully. Uh, we might say they're very involved in ministry. They're, they're in every team, every week. They're serving. They give a lot of money to the church. They give generously. In fact, they've decided to become a missionary, to go to a foreign field. In fact, they're martyred for their faith. Do you know that you can be a martyr and not be saved? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Very similar to what Jesus says. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is, is not about marriage. Okay, so <laughs> it's, uh, I know we read it at weddings. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the context. Paul is talking about the local church. And the Corinthians were confused because they were chasing after all these external things. Prophesying and speaking in other languages and casting out demons and healing people. They wanted the showy gifts, the power gifts. They thought that was a sign of spirituality. And Paul says this, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're simply making a noise. And if I have prophetic powers, see that? You're prophesying. And understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, wouldn't you say that's a great person, a person who gives away all they have? And if I deliver up my body to be burned, martyred, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Very similar to what Jesus is saying. You can have all those things. The people, you know, I wouldn't be surprised some of the, some of the people we read about in, in, in biographies of church history are not in heaven. Because what do we do? We praise all those external things. They gave so much. They sacrificed so much. But how much love was there? Often you hear that they're not actually very nice people. Sometimes you know, discover people close to them. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. You can see these people are arrogant. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. We don't have time to go into it. But you see, that's the real issue. If you belong to Christ, you will become more like Him. If you belong to the triune God, you'll become more like Him. And what are we told? God is love. You will grow in love. And submission to, to God. You will obey Him. You will do what He tells you to do. And then verse 23, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ will talk. They've said their, they've said their words. They've been saying a lot of things. Lord, 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 Lord. Praising, talking, talking, talking. No, we say that. Talk is cheap. Okay. That's the truth. They had a lot to say, and now it's the Lord's turn to talk. 
And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that incredible? In the church, used powerfully. The Lord says, you're a worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. I also want you to see here, this is another claim to deity from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is just sitting on a... You know, I haven't been there. I've seen photos of Israel. Okay, But you know, we talk about mountains. We say the Drakensberg. Okay? But I know people who've seen the Alps and things like that. They say, you know, that's, it's a joke of a mountain, really. Okay, Compared to those mountains, okay? Everest and those kind of things. This, uh, the mount, this is not a mount, it's, it's you know, a copy. These are, these are small. It's a nowhere place. Okay? It's, it's a little hill that he's talking on to some people in a backwater of the Roman Empire that has no you know, influence outside of, of what we know on world history. It's not Rome. It's not the center of the, the empire with the wealth and the power and the status, the economic structures, the influence, the systems. It's, it's poor people, agrarian culture, fishermen sitting on the side of a hill. And Jesus says, I'm going to stand on judgment day and judge the whole world. I'm going to tell these people, I never knew you. Isn't that incredible? If we heard somebody was doing that in, you know, the hills of KZN, we'd say, well, that person's crazy, okay? (laughs) You would, and I would say, you're right to do that. But here's the thing. You either have to say that Jesus Christ was crazy, He's a nobody who's a lunatic. Or you have to deal with what he is saying. But you can't move between. He was a great man. Either, as, as Lewis said, either he was a lunatic, a liar, or else he is Lord. And he is claiming here to be Lord. He is going to stand on judgment day and he's going to say to people who were in their churches, who were used in their churches, who said, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now don't, don't get confused here. This is not to say God is not omniscient and doesn't know all things. Of course God knows all things. Know here is the idea of an intimate relationship. Okay. We're told in Genesis, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. It's an idea of saying that they were intimate. Okay. That's what it means. An intimate relationship. That's when the scripture says, those whom he foreknew, those whom he set his love upon. What he's saying to these people, I never knew you, I had never had a loving relationship with you. I never knew you. Not, I once knew you at the altar call or that youth camp or, you know, that that conference you went to that was so emotional and then you got baptized on the beach because everyone else did. he doesn't say that, and then, I, you know, then, then you fell away. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I never knew you. Okay. You know that the Bible teaches if you're truly saved, you will never be lost. Okay. Because he's a good shepherd. He doesn't lose any of his sheep. What this means is, you never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. Never had a relationship. Now, I want to say to you that that's what Christian, the core of Christianity is, is who you know. 
It's relational. Imagine it was, it was, Christianity was about jumping through hoops or getting a pass mark. Can you imagine that? Uh, let's say the pass mark's 45%, you know, to get into heaven. And then you get, you know, 44.4. That would be horrific. Just, you know, if only I'd done one extra good work or done something, I would have made it. It's not like that. It's not horizontal, it's vertical. It's just to know God. To know Him is life. It's a relationship. It is to know Him as Lord. And you will be saved. If you know Him, that's what salvation is. It is that you know the Lord as Lord, which means you're submitting to Him as Lord. So if you don't leave here going, I'm going to try harder, then you've missed it. It's come to Him as Lord and say, Lord, I will obey you. Remember what the Lord Jesus says, if you obey me, if you keep my commandments, I'll manifest myself to you. Say, Lord, I'm submitting to you and I'm going to obey you. I'm not going to wait for a burning in my bosom. I'm not going to wait for some emotions because you can have all the emotions and not be saved. Let me encourage you with that because some of you maybe are thinking, I don't have all of those emotions all the time. I was talking with somebody this week. said, you know, I I can't pinpoint the day that I was saved. And that's fine. The Bible never says you have to pinpoint the day you were saved. It doesn't say you have to have a fireworks experience or anything like that. It can be gradual. Growing in the knowledge of the Lord and trusting Him and obeying Him. And there's ups and downs, but you continue to submit to Him because you know Him. Lord Jesus says this, My sheep... Know my voice. Okay. And know him. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know the Lord. And so let me challenge you on that. And also encourage you. Uh, this, this is supposed to be a war. Well, it is a warning passage to all of us. What are you, what are you building your assurance of salvation on? Is it because you're, you're involved in the church? You're good at evangelizing? You always talk about the Lord. Um, you have a desire to, to serve the Lord. Is that what you're building on? Don't build your, your salvation on that. Is there, the Puritans used to say this, it's not your gifts, it's your graces. Okay. It's not your gifts, it's your graces. What do they mean by that? It's the grace of God in your life that is changing you, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Judas never had any of the fruit of the Spirit. Unbelievers, even if they profess Christ, don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, etc. You saw that in 1 Corinthians 13. Is there a growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Is there a growing in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? When you leave a sermon and you've been convicted of something, is there a commitment to say, I'm going to fix that? I want to obey the Lord. Or is there resistance? No, that is too costly. I will not give that up. See, then that's a sign. Those are warning signs to say, maybe you're not a believer. If you're not willing to to submit to the Lord as as He points out things in you. We're not talking perfection, but a willingness to submit to the Lord. To obey Him. And so let me challenge you and let me also encourage, cry out, plead. If you don't know the Lord, come to Him. It is a relationship. It is to know Him. Come to Him. 
The promise is, if you come to him, he will not cast you away. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. It's an absolute promise. You come to him, he will receive you. You come in repentance and faith, he will receive you. You will know him. And to know him is life eternal. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, uh, we find that you are the one who has proclaimed some of the most startling and harsh words in the whole Bible. It's really a corrective to the, to the idolatrous view of what you are like and what you are like. You're not Jesus meek and mild, not Jesus in a manger. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have absolute authority over all things and you will judge the world. And yet you call us to, to be part of your kingdom to come under your rule and reign. You are a perfect king, a good king, a king who laid down his life for his citizens. So, Father, I do pray that every one of us here would know you. The evidence in that would be that we, we love. We love one another. As you, as you told your disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for one another. That we wouldn't be petty, and self-righteous and arrogant, but gracious and patient and kind. That we would love our neighbors, those we come into contact with in the world, at work, at college, university, school, communities. And Lord, even to love our enemies, those who hate us and wish to do us wrong that we would desire that they would be saved. And so we, we pray, help us to grow in love, Lord. And we also pray, help us to be those who obey you and submit to you as you convict us by your Spirit, as you reveal sin, that we would be ruthless and deal with it, that we would yield our whole lives to you. It's the great irony of Scripture that as we lose our lives, we gain life. It's so hard for us to believe that, to act out on it. It seems counterintuitive. We want to hold on. We want to keep control. But when we do that, we lose life, Lord. We die. So help us to lose our lives, to trust you absolutely, to submit to you completely. You are good and holy and righteous. And as we do that, you give us real life, abundant life. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.